live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Okay, so welcome everybody to another episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast for the Religious Socialism Working Group, uh, part of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, my name is Jeremy, uh, Jeremy McMahon, and normally I'm the one that produces the show. Uh, so it's my first time here uh, actually speaking, and I am with uh, Travis Donahoe today. How are you doing today, Travis? Just fine. Good, good. Thanks for being here. Uh, and so the, really the reason why we decided to do this podcast uh, in particular, or why uh, I'm here today is that Travis and I are both uh, Buddhist. And so we're going to be discussing about how our Buddhist beliefs and our Buddhist practice, uh, you know, relate to socialism and our uh, socialist uh, activities. So um, Travis, uh, why don't you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you first came to Buddhism and how you first discovered it? Uh, yes, I uh, was a uh, labor union organizer professionally for about 20 years and a, mm. a union leader for at least 10 years uh, before that. And I was leading a very intense life, uh, at least 60 hours a week as a union organizer and uh, taking care of my wife, who was a union president who had a rare pulmonological disease and who died. Uh, in a double lung transplant operation that was unsuccessful. And uh, uh, I was uh, tending toward meditation as I was dealing with her illness. And after her death, I uh, attended a sangha, that's uh, the Buddhist term for community, meeting a couple of months after her death of the uh, Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha, or Order of Interbeing Sangha. And uh, I have been involved in uh, either the Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha or the uh, uh, Sangha affiliated with uh, the San Francisco Zen Center uh, for decades since then. Mm. And uh, I found it very important uh, to my grieving process, uh, but it also enabled me to... uh, take years off from being an organizer and learn how to uh, deal with it in very, very intense lifestyle. And, uh, and beyond that, uh, about three years after I started sitting with the Sangha, I had an epiphany 
that the world was perfect in the middle of the absolute chaos of the Seattle anti-World Trade Organization demonstrations on mm-hmm. November 30th, 1999, which also strengthened uh, my ability to uh, find joy in my work and to also find uh, meaning and social content to my uh, spiritual life. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, I just want to say, you know, sorry for your loss. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I kind of relate to that too. I, I had a, um, a brother who passed away, um, rather young and, you know, I think that definitely, you know, pushed me into, you know, discovering Buddhism. I already knew about Buddhism before, but really, you know, motivated me to learn more about it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how these, you know, tragedies can really lead us to, you know, find, uh, to follow this path. But, uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and so I guess a little, just a little bit about me is, uh, I was first really exposed to Buddhism when I, uh, visited Bhutan when I was 18, actually. And, um, yeah, I just, I really just fell in love with, uh, with, with the culture there and, you know, led me to study it in college. And, um, eventually I, I actually worked at the Rubin Museum of Art in New York for a long time, which is a Tibetan Buddhist art museum. So I'm kind of coming from the Tibetan side of things. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually that led me to start, uh, to really practice, um, and take it seriously. And, uh, I mean, I, I, re- I really appreciated how you said, you know, your, your Buddhist practice, uh, you know, coped or help you cope with your, uh, intense, you know, or, uh, labor organizing lifestyle. And, uh, could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, one of the most comforting things about practicing in the uh, order of inner being or Thich Nhat Hanh tradition is that Thich Nhat Hanh coined the term socially engaged Buddhism mm. based on his experience with the uh, School for Youth and Social Service in wartime Vietnam and uh, including the deaths, deaths of some of his students from death squads. Mm. And... Uh, I found his approach to mindfulness and meditation uh, is deeply anchored in uh, social action, and that's helped a lot. It sounds like when I hear Ta, uh, Thai, as, uh, that's Vietnamese for teacher, talking about uh, social action, I know he's been there in a very profound way. Yeah, and uh, he also understands the intensity having been right in the middle of the Vietnam War, as a matter of fact, being the chair of the Vietnamese peace delegation to the Paris Peace Talks. Uh, he understands what it's like to fight those battles and uh, the, the desperate need to take care of yourself in the process. And so I really appreciated that. Um, since that epiphany in Seattle, amidst the clouds of tear gas, that the world is perfect, which took me a long time to integrate uh, when I had that epiphany, I haven't had any uh, burnouts. And mm. uh, 
I've kept a fairly even keel, and uh, I like to think I've actually been helpful to other political activists who are undergoing through a similar crisis in their political and social work at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have. And, uh, you know, this is something that I talk a lot about uh, when I talk about Buddhism and my Buddhist practice, but uh, and even just meditation. And because um, I oftentimes I, I, I teach meditation in, in a you know pretty secular way, but really this idea that, you know, when you practice, um, you're not doing it for yourself, but you're, you're doing it for other beings or other people. Um, and so I'm sure that, you know, with your practice, you know, you have, you've really helped support people, you know, not only yourself, but you have been able to support, um, others, uh, you know, in this really difficult endeavor that we have, uh, in trying to, you know, create, you know, political, uh, change in this country. So uh, another thing that, uh, we had talked about previously um, in our conversation before we uh, had, did the podcast. Um, was talking about this idea of how you know Buddhism in America um, is often, uh, or a lot of American Buddhists are often seemingly apolitical, and uh, you know that's what I think is so great about your story is that you know, for you, it's very clear that, you know, your practice really supports, uh, you know, your political life. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've noticed and uh, with about uh, American Buddhists being uh, kind of apolitical and sort of not really that concerned with, uh, you know, creating political change? Uh, yes, uh Surprisingly, it's been somewhat frustrating for me operating the Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha, which is a sangha which uh, uh, gives a lot of credence to the idea of Buddhists being involved in social action. I've I found that uh, there's a tendency among Buddhists and my tendency and in Buddhists generally to think of all conflict as wrong. And that the goal is to lead a conflictless uh, existence as regards other beings. And uh, I don't think Tai believes that. I know uh, before he had a stroke, which uh, left him unable to talk, uh, he was moving very rapidly toward encouraging Sangha members to be very active in opposing climate change. Mm. And uh, that Tennessee has actually accelerated uh, since his stroke. Uh, but uh, there's this idea that conflict should be anathema and uh, no change in society happens without conflict, whether it's the civil rights movement, Aung San Chi in Burma, uh, speaking of current events, Mm -hmm. uh, the International Solidarity Movement, which was founded by Netta Golan, who's a member of our World Sangha, to uh, bring nonviolent action to the fore in the Palestinian rights struggle. Uh, there's many examples, but I think uh, there is a mistaken idea that uh, to engage in any kind of conflict is, is anti-Buddhist. 
And I think nothing could be further from the truth, because if there's any watchword in Buddhism, regardless of the tendency or tradition, I think it's not turning away from mm-hmm. suffering, as in not turning away from suffering. And uh, I don't think you can uh, tackle the problems of suffering without engaging in some conflict. The point is for it to be to remain nonviolent and for uh, the person engaging to uh, always be involved in compassionate confrontation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. No, I, I totally agree with, um, you know, everything you said right there. And yeah, that this idea that, uh, you know, to not turn away from the suffering of the world. Um, I mean, you know, Buddhism, uh, at its core, I mean, one of the big proponents of Buddhism or one of the big teachings of Buddhism is of course, developing awareness and, you know, be, you have to be aware of the suffering in order for change to, you know, uh, to actually happen. Uh, that's the first step. But not only is uh, what you're saying, of course, is not only uh, is awareness is not enough. You know, you have to actually engage with uh, with the problems, engage with the suffering in order to uh, create change. And yeah, I mean, I think you know, again, with, in my experience with a lot of Western Buddhists, it's like, you know, they aren't too concerned with, yeah, uh, what's going on outside in the world. And, you know, you, uh, you do develop and, or you do hear, you know, these people, you know, that are just kind of, (laughs) you know, navel gazing and concerned with their own suffering. But, uh, you know, especially with the idea that you brought up with climate change and uh, how Thich Nhat Hanh has really, uh, you know, been pushing that his uh, his followers, you know, fight against climate change. I mean, climate change is something that, you know, affects everybody and that we can't ignore and that, you know, particularly for uh, for these Buddhists that maybe ignoring these problems, you know, something like social change or something like climate change, you know, uh, would, will affect them in the end, (laughs) you know, eventually. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really great observation and great point to bring up that, uh, you know, you do have to, again, really be aware of the suffering in the world in order for, uh, for uh, change to really occur? Well, I think even my own tendency, uh, the order of meaning tendency, is moving in a direction of realizing that resolving climate change isn't a matter of just a matter of people uh, leading uh, ecological lifestyles, although that's important. I noticed in the uh, mindfulness bell, which is the World Journal of uh, the Order of Inner Being Sangha this month that there is an article by a young Dutch woman who is act- active in Extinction Rebellion, mm. uh, which is a mostly European movement, uh, but it has a very heavy emphasis on uh, nonviolent resistance, such as getting arrested uh, for protesting uh, 
corporate environmental malfeasance. And uh, that's quite a ways from saying that uh, Buddha should be involved. It's kind of, it's a great step forward to show that, yes, we can be nonviolent. We can even get arrested without violating our Buddhist ethics. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to go back to and talk about that idea of uh, compassionate confrontation. Uh, I really like that phrase. And yeah, I mean, I think there is this idea and this perception of Buddhists as being, you know, basically being complete pacifists, right? And while, of course, Buddhism teaches, you know, uh, no killing and, you know, no harming, like that doesn't mean you have to be <laughs> completely and utterly pacifist. And uh, that's one thing that I've really love in Tibetan Buddhist culture is that they do have this idea of, of wrathful compassion. Um, and you see that depicted in the images of their, of their wrathful deities. Um, and these deities, for those of you who don't know, um, basically imagine a demon in your head. And that's basically what <laughs> these deities look like. They have big eyes and they have uh, big fangs. Um, they have like hair that looks like f flames. They're often wearing, uh, animal skins or even human skins and they're holding weapons and they can have blood coming from their teeth. So just really, you know, demonic looking figures, but they're actually supposed to be these manifestations, uh, of compassion. And, uh, for me, it's it just uh, it's such a beautiful way to show too how you can take you know negative emotions like anger and hatred and you know transform them into something positive um, and how yeah you can take those negative things and rather than be destructive you know be constructive uh, be constructive with them uh, and so. Yeah, sometimes the most compassionate thing to do for people is uh, to confront them and to be a little mean to them and, you know, to really get your point across. Um, so I think that's a really valuable lesson uh, for not just Buddhists, but, you know, for all activists that, you know, you can, uh, you know, it's okay to be, uh, it's okay to confront people. It's okay to, you know, push, uh, push them a little bit. It's okay, uh, to, to be, maybe be a little mean or get a little angry, express a little anger. Um, you know, just as long as your intention and your, uh, heart are really in the right place and that, you know, you are doing it from a place of compassion. Uh, so yeah, again, a really, really important point I feel. Yeah, and uh, the concept of wrathful deities is uh, mostly absent or entirely absent in Zen. But what uh, both uh, Tibetan tradition and the Zen tradition, which are both uh, part of the Mahayana school of Buddhism, uh, share is the concept of the Bodhisattva. And I think that's a very important concept to hold in your heart as you're doing political work, the idea that uh, every being has the ability to be a Buddha and that uh, Buddhism is based 
or at least Mahayana Buddhism, I can't speak to the older variety, is based on the idea that uh, uh, of universal salvation, that the Bodhisattva is a spiritual adventurer who uh, is determined to not enter nirvana until every living being is awakened and enters nirvana. It's a beautiful concept that that helps keep you going, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the idea, yeah, the idea of a bodhisattva, I think is definitely just, you know, super inspirational. And, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, there's a category of deities, but it's something that, you know, any technically anybody can become a bodhisattva, which I think is really beautiful. And, you know, as it's a pretty common practice um, in the Tibetan tradition. And well, well, you let me know if it's also in the Zen tradition, I'm not sure, but to take the Bodhisattva vow in like a formalized way is, uh, you know, pretty traditional. Do they, do they do that in Zen? Uh, in Zen, other than the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, the Bodhisattva vow is very explicit. It's uh it exists in the tendency I work in, but it's uh, that I practice, but it's a bit different. Uh, uh, I'm a member of the Order of Inner Being, which is uh, a lay and monastic uh, order within the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition. And uh, we uh, routinely take the uh, 14 mindfulness trainings, and there's a, a parallel in others in as well. But the most magnificent thing about the 14 mindful trainings is it's the best distillation of spiritual politics I've ever seen. It uh, talks about uh, under uh, not being greedy, it talks about corporations hmm. uh, and, uh, and how that we vow uh, to not take anything which does not belong to us, but also we take the vow to stop others from stealing, including uh, businesses from stealing from others. So wow. it's uh, it's really heady stuff. That's one thing that kept me going in the tradition with a brief uh, break into uh, San Francisco Zen Center times in. Mm. Uh, just that uh, I have to take that vow once every three months or I will have to undergo the process of becoming a member of the order inner, inner being again. Mm. And uh, it's just magnificent to, that this takes a uh, very old uh, Zen vow and updates it to include climate change, to uh, include re resisting greedy corporations, to... Uh, oppose uh, sexual abuse of children in its 14 points. It's uh, just an amazing feature wow. of the kind of Buddhism I practice. Yeah, that's really incredible. And I think that's really cool that they uh, updated it. Um, because one thing I do find pretty exciting um, about this time, uh, being an American Buddhist in particular, is that you know we're seeing, we're really just in the beginning season, uh, stages of seeing what you know American Buddhism is going to shape and uh, turn out to become. And even when, as we're talking, you know, Travis is 
uh, talking about how, you know, he's a follower of Thich Nhat Hanh and that's Vietnamese Zen. And for me, I mean, my, uh, my guru is Sakya Trichin, who's the head of the Sakya school of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And you can see that, uh, you know, that they're culturally specific, you know, <laughs> one is Vietnamese and one is Tibetan. And then generally, uh, you know, in American Buddhism, when you practice with the Sangha, it is generally associated with a particular culture. Uh, but I think it is, I see that it's, you know, your Sangha in particular sounds like it's really made efforts to adapt to not only, not only to, you know, Western and American, um, culture, but also, you know, to our modern world and to our modern problems. And, you know, I think again, a lot of times people use Buddhism or view Buddhism as kind of as, as an escapism uh, type of practice where, you know, they, they use it cause they want to have a break from the world. Um, but again, really what Travis and I are saying and what Travis and I is, our experience has been is that, you know, it's, that's not really what Buddhism about is about. It's about actually being engaged, uh, engaged with the world. I, I would like to add that, uh, I too, have, I don't know if frustration is uh, the right word, but although the song in which I, world song in which I participate is constantly updating itself, is that uh, uh, it's somewhat frustrating that I there aren't more Buddhists who identify themselves as socialists. I know some, but uh, I uh, for some reason I haven't exactly figured out. Uh, there's a tendency to shy away from ideology among socially engaged Buddhists. It's, it's kind of like uh, Occupy was. People didn't tend to identify themselves as anything but anti-capitalist, and they didn't call themselves anarchists or socialists or whatever. And uh, I think that's coming. Uh, one reason why I think that's coming uh, among more and more practitioners in my Buddhist tendency is that there's a heavy emphasis when it comes to social action on fighting climate change. And uh, I personally believe, and I think others will come to believe that uh, we will not win out over climate change as long as the U.S. remains a capitalist society. It's just not possible. It requires, yeah. it requires social planning on a large scale, which capitalism cannot and will not tolerate yeah i mean i i i think you know you really hit on something big there about this idea of not being able to or this resistance uh to adopting you know an ideology um like you know a worldly ideology um like socialism but i mean for me personally you know, it just study, having studied Buddhism and, you know, it's really studying, uh, the idea of like interdependence and, uh, interconnectedness. And it just seems that to me, you know, that socialism, you know, makes total sense, uh, in the Buddhist worldview. And of course, Buddhism, you know, fundamentally teaches or 
really tries to teach you and, uh, you know, how to get in contact with true reality. I mean, that's really the point. And it's like the deeper that you uh, shed your kind of your preconceived notions of the world and your assumptions of the world and you get deeper into that truthful experience, uh, you know, to me, it just makes socialism, you know, make that much more sense, you know, that we're, that we are all in this together. And that like, exactly as uh, you said, Travis, it's like, you know, capitalism and, you know, individual consumption, you know, is going to destroy us all uh, in the form of climate change unless we make a real social change. So I, I hope, you know, uh, like you said, that I hope that more, you know, soon more Buddhists will make that realization and, you know, come over to the other side and realize that, yeah, we do need political uh, and social change if we are, or if we are even going to survive. And uh, the other thing I was thinking about too, when you brought up the idea of Bodhisattva um, and what's, what is helpful for me uh, you know, when, when dealing with, you know, political opponents and, uh, you know, people that, uh, you have to confront, um, and, you know, even just hearing the news and, you know, and just hearing, you know, the awful things that happen, uh, is understanding that everybody has kind of the flip side to what you said, Travis is, a, you know, everybody's a Buddha, but on the other side that, you know, everybody is, has ignorance and that everybody is suffering. Uh, and that, you know, these people are doing these actions, uh, that harm others, uh, you know, because of their own ignorance, um, and, you know, in a way, because they don't really, they don't see that how harming others, they're really harming themselves. Uh, so I don't know, for me, again, that kind of helps build, kind of maintain that level of compassion have for, you know, for the people that uh, that are out there harming the world. Uh, would you agree with that, Travis? Yeah, I would. And, uh, I think we, you know, even not looking at it on, on a metal level that everybody's capable and eventually will be a Buddha, Buddha is the idea that Buddhism has given me a kind of cosmic understanding, excuse the term, that everyone's doing the best they can on some level and a compassion for that, but also an unwillingness to stand by and uh, let the worst happen. I, I once heard a uh, friend of mine say that he was good friends with a, a Jesuit priest. And I, this isn't really a Buddhist saying, uh, maybe a milder version of it, but the uh, Jesuit priest told him to, uh, to love his enemies, but defeat them. And I think a milder version of that is probably appropriate for Buddhists, the idea that we're going to love every being, but uh, we're also not going to stand idly by while they uh, impose massive suffering on other beings. But, uh, and once again, that comes into the idea of compassionate confrontation yeah. Um, one one aspect I wanted to mention uh, is that what Buddhism has to offer 
people, uh, leftist radicals, socialists who are, are secular at the moment is that I've found a lot of teachings, and this goes back to what we were discussing at the first, how I became a Buddhist. Uh, there's a lot of teachings in Buddhism on, on self-care or community care, as it's often called now. And there's a whole school of activism that says you you need to take care of yourself. Probably the most profound, if uh, colloquial, aspect of that is I've heard uh, multiple Buddhist teachers in various traditions and tendencies say that you uh, need to think of yourself as a flight attendant or mm. being told by a flight attendant to put the mask on yourself before you help the child or person next to you. Wow. Yeah. And that that has great meaning for overworked and, and burned out political activists, the idea that you need to have a bare minimum of self-control and self-satisfaction before you go out and change the world. You do need to take care of yourself. Yeah, I think that is, uh, you know, a message that uh, can't be shared enough, uh, really. And again, it's something I always emphasize when I'm teaching meditation. Um, but yeah, again, you know, we take care of ourselves so that we can, you know, better serve others and, and, uh, better create change. Um, so Travis is, uh, anything else, uh, you wanted to cover today on this podcast? I don't think so. Just, uh, we need more socialist Buddhist <laughs> and we need more Buddhist socialist, uh, Obviously, there are some. There are many. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, the DSA webinar later this month uh, with a science fiction writer who uh, weaves both socialism and uh, Buddhism into his writings. And, oh, wow. Uh, that's that's going to be great. So, but Yeah, uh, definitely looking forward to that. Yeah. And uh, also, I just want to give a quick shout out um, to Fran. Uh, who put us together, who connected us. Um, and, uh, he's, uh, he's writing a book about, um, religion and socialism. And, uh, he has a chapter in it about Buddhism and, uh, he quotes both, uh, Travis and I, uh, in the chapter. Uh, so, not sure when that will be coming out, but <laughs> uh, for those of you uh, out there, you'll have that to look forward to. Um, and of course, you've probably, if you've listened to the podcast before, you've probably heard Fran uh, on on the podcast. He's hosted uh, quite a few episodes. Um, but thank you so much, uh, Travis, uh, for being here and for uh, doing this with me. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I hope everybody out there uh, enjoyed it too. So thanks again for being here. Well, thank you. And I hope you enjoyed not only producing the podcast, but actually being a subject to the podcast for a change. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting role, uh, to be in, uh, you know, to be on the side of it. Um, but thanks Travis and, uh, for everybody, uh, listening out there, you know, take care of yourself, uh, so that we can create that real change that's so desperately needed. So thanks again, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next time.
This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.